I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119. That's a large chapter. You've got about 10 pages or so not to miss that one. Um, But right there toward the end part of the book of Psalms, that's where we'll be reading here in just a moment. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the pew, and that'll be on page 552 in our pew Bible. But I want to read to you the first 16 verses or so, and then we'll bow in prayer, we'll ask the Lord for help, and we'll study what we've read. But this is Psalm 119, verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your help once again. Together as a body of believers with Bibles open in our laps, we read about the Bible in the Bible. We ask that you open our understanding, that you teach us. May we be a good student. May our ears be open to your word today. And may our hearts be ready to change where we see that we don't match. Lord, we ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, we're counting down to a new year. I checked while uh, we were dismissing the children a moment ago. We've got about two days and 15 hours before we get a new year. And uh, in most ways, January 1st will be just like any other day. It's got 24 hours. It's in January, like the other days in January. It's really kind of like your birthday. Most of us don't feel any older. We feel a day older, but not a year older. But there's something about a new year which gives us a nice place to look back on the previous year and to look forward to a new one, to make an assessment of uh, our, our decline, to try to plan for progress. Uh, it's a good place for people who are, are, are prone to keep a calendar 
to organize themselves around a new year. And I suppose it shouldn't be any different for Christians. But then again, for Christians, it should probably mean more than for folks who are not. Because as spiritually minded people, we can use a new year to look back on our walk spiritually and plan for our walk forward from here. And being spiritually minded, I would say that at the forefront of all of our New Year's resolutions, if we want to go ahead and bring that up today, Bible reading, Bible study, prayer time would be among the top of that list. And that is, for all intents and purposes, the most important part of our spiritual self. Reading our Bible is the way we hear God speak. And praying is the way God hears us speak. Of course, He knows our minds, He knows our thoughts, but the exercise of prayer is how we talk to God. Reading His Word is how He talks to us. So today I want to talk about at least one of those two. That would be Bible study. And perhaps Wednesday evening we'll look at the other side of that as far as prayer. Some of you just decided I'm not coming on Wednesday. <laughs> because at the top of the things that are just not exciting to listen to are reading your Bible, praying, tithing. I don't know, maybe uh, depending on the church you attend, you won't hear it here, but some churches like to talk about eating and weight loss and things like that. <laughs> That's a sure way to make sure nobody comes to church. But it's a new year, and these things are important. And God's Word has a lot to say about both. And it's worth our time to make sure that we cover those bases, put our best foot forward, and ask the Lord to help us to be better than we were the previous year, closer than we were last year, more knowledgeable about His Word, more intimate in our conversation with Him. So 2020 will be just like any other year as far as the space of time. Actually, not. It's 366 days this year. It is a leap year, and for those that have birthdays on the 29th of February, you get a birthday this year. But it'll be full of busy schedules and commitments and uh, gains and losses and sorrows and happiness. But what's going to be different about it as far as what's most important? Here's something that I heard that I think I know it's been helpful to me, maybe it'll be helpful to you, but just a way to put into perspective the year you have ahead of you. Make sure that at the beginning, and as always, every day, you need to make sure you understand the difference between what you do and who you are. And who you are might have a lot to do with what you do, but some things are just so important, they're better put in the category of who you are than what you do. Let me try to explain that. On my short list of things to do this year is build a house. It's, it's not a small thing. It's a very big thing. And I might not even get it done in a year. We've bought some land, but haven't cleared it off yet. We've got a very short list of plans for the home, and I've got a whole brain full of things I want to do better than the last home I built. But that's on my list of things to do. But that's not really who I am. Now, on my list of things to do daily is read my Bible and pray. And 
I'm like the rest of you. There'll be days where I miss that. The war is consistency. The battle is getting it done daily. You want to win the war. Reading my Bible and praying is who I am. I'm a child of God. It's much the same way with you, and it's much the same way with this church. Collectively, as brothers and sisters, we're going to preach and teach and share in Sunday school classes and with the children and in this room the Bible. That's who we are. We're going to pray together. We do that on Wednesdays each week. For the most part, weather doesn't get in our way. We'll do that 52 times this year. Now, sometime this year, we're going to sit down and talk about what to do since we paid off the last building we owed on. And if we continue to grow in numbers here, we're going to eventually need to talk about whether or not we build a new building. That's not what we're going to talk about today. But we will talk about it this year. But even if my house doesn't get built and a new building doesn't get built as far as this church family, we're still going to read our Bibles and we're still going to pray because that's who we are. And if we're strong in that category, then the things that God gives us to do will be done with more excellence, more efficiency. It'll be done well. That is the things we do. We keep those separate. Let's focus today on who we are. And we'll do that by looking at this very unique psalm, very long psalm. Um, it's the longest passage in Scripture, longest chapter, that is. Uh, flip over to the end of it. It might take you several pages, but look at the end. You'll see how many verses there are, and you'll be glad that I didn't read the whole chapter. <laughs> 176 verses in this 119th chapter of the Psalms. And if you know your Bible uh, well enough as far as its study and its composition, you know that the Bible has more than one genre. Poetry is a very large part of the Bible. Uh, the, this is put together and on, situated on the page even differently. It, it's, it's indentations and so forth. It, it looks like poetry. More specifically than that... Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. Do you know what an acrostic is? An acrostic is where you use the first letter of the words to spell out something on a vertical basis. Uh, it's difficult to do because it limits your, your vocabulary choices. They have to start with a specific letter. That's what this is. But more interesting than that is the way this psalmist, this poet, goes about doing so. If you'll look, if you're back at verse 1 of chapter 119, it goes for about eight verses before you see another header, and then another eight verses, and another header, and another eight verses, and another header. And if your first header, it just depends on how your Bible's laid out. Some don't have this like others, but it probably says Aleph at the very beginning and over verse 1. And then at verse 9 it says bait. looks like it says Beth, but it's pronounced bait. And then there's Gimel in verse 17. Do you know what those are? Those are the Hebrew letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And if you go all the way to verse 76, all 22 of them are covered. You got eight verses for every letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And what's more intriguing than that if you look at the first 
eight verses, all of those verses, you won't see this in your English translation because, believe it or not, Hebrew words and English words aren't spelled the same or with the same letters. We got 26 letters. They've got 22. But every one of these eight verses begin with the letter Aleph. The next verses, 9 through 16, all begin with bait, and so on and so forth, all 22 times. Now you might be able to wrap your head around the massive chore it would be to write a poem about the Bible and its worth, its treasure, its usefulness. And you have to use every letter of the alphabet eight times and say something different each time. Now that's a piece of poetry, wouldn't you say? Just the scale of doing it. I'm, I'm thinking back to English class and having to write a theme or a poem or a short story or a research paper. And then for somebody to say, oh, by the way, we want this in the form of an acrostic, so take most of your vocabulary and don't use it. And then I want you to use every letter in the alphabet eight separate times. You almost want to say, did you do this to make it as hard as you possibly can to actually make it readable? But that's exactly what this is. And it's all about the Bible. So the longest chapter in the Bible, just to summarize, a Bible which is a poem about the Bible, says something different about the Bible for every Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet Times eight. That's what we're looking at in our laps. How many of you wrote poetry? I want you to have to think about it like I did this week. Of all of you that wrote poetry, don't raise your hands. How many of you like doing it? And of you that wrote poetry and liked it, how many of you would say you're good at it? Probably just narrows it down each time. What I thought I'd do, just for fun, just so maybe you can struggle like this fella did, I found this acrostic poem on the internet. It's a great place to find poems. I actually did a search for bad poems. I didn't find anything useful. I did, but my wife will probably be glad I didn't bring them with me <laughs> to the pulpit. But this is an acrostic Spelling out the name Lauren. For the letter L, lovely and efficient. This guy is writing. For the letter A, awesome at listening and cooking. I think he's betraying his interests here. For the U, utilitarian and frugal with money and tools. Usually money has to do with frugality and tools have to do with Utility. I think he might have got those backwards. Maybe it's on purpose. Maybe he's being creative. For the R, really something special to me. Now that's the stuff good poems are made out of. Right? <laughs> For the letter E, elegantly effervescent. He's using a double E here. And other E words. Maybe he's got some he doesn't want to mention. Or maybe he's being lazy, he knows there are, but he's not going to try to make a triple E word, just the double the work. And then the N, naturally beautiful eyes and freckles. And it's at, it's at this point that Lauren doesn't have freckles. James, this is not you. 
But it fits for the most part. You do have freckles? You cover them up. James, did you write this? No, James didn't write it. See, maybe my wife did wish I left this at home. But you see the struggle it would be to put together something by limiting yourself purposefully. As if to say, this means something important enough to me that I will struggle in, in order to articulate what this means. So you could say that Psalm 119 is the Bible from A to Z to the power of eight. And we've mentioned that this psalm is about the Bible, the Scripture, the Word of God. I'll add one more thing before we start looking at it. There's also eight synonyms that describe the Bible, God's Word. And we read through 16 verses. By verse 11, you see all eight of them. And some translations nuance differences the way you might not see all eight. But these are law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commands, decrees, word, and promise. All of that basically means the same thing, just slightly different. Why would you use eight words to say what you could get done in one? Because you're being fancy on purpose. That's poetry, right? Beauty is in the nuances. When you've got someone who's excited about something, they're going to use more words, not less, to communicate the way they feel or think or believe about something. We've got poetry in the scriptures that go the extra mile to make sure that we see what this guy thinks about the scriptures. So if I wanted to showcase over the next five minutes or so, going to take longer than that, but we've taken more than I wanted to just to introduce it. How would we go about looking at 176 verses when we don't have 176 minutes if we just gave one to each? We'd be here for days. This is too big to discuss in one day. Well, there's a way I think that it'll be helpful for you, if only for you to take home and be able to study it yourself with this little formula. It was helpful to me. But here's what we'll do. We'll try to at least take a handful of these verses out to look at what this psalmist believes about the Word of God. Because he's going to give a great deal over to saying what he believes. It's almost like a creed. I believe this and that and the other. And then after we do that, what the psalmist feels about the Word of God. He doesn't just speak from his mind He's speaking from his heart here. There's a lot of emotions involved here. How does he feel about it? And then finally, what the psalmist does because of what he believes and what he feels about the Word of God. Does that make sense? What he believes, what he feels, and what difference it makes in his life. And we'll just cherry pick some of these verses from the 176 and get a picture of what this is. And then we'll ask ourselves at the end, do I feel that way? Do I believe that? If those answers are yes, do I do what he's doing? And if not, should I make an attempt to do that in 2020? So what does he believe about the word of Scripture? Well, look in verse 1. We'll just start at the beginning and pick some. Blessed are those whose way is blameless who walk in the law of the Lord. So right off the bat, he believes... That those who walk, which is always an ethical term most of the time in the Old Testament. That those who walk in the law of the Lord are without blame. He didn't say perfect. 
but to pattern your lifestyle, your ethical constitution after the laws of God will put you in a category where you're not perfect or sinless, but you're, you're blameless with your family, the people you work with. You're Teflon coated. Things don't stick because you live an upright life. Uh, morally, ethically speaking, walking according to this book sets you in that specific place. He adds to that in verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. So he believes there's a blessing involved for those who keep his testimonies. Testimony is the same way of saying law or precepts or statutes or commands. This is similar to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, sitteth in the seat of scorners, uh, or stands in the, uh, sits in the seat of the, that's the third one. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it doth he meditate day and night. And there's the rest of the chapter to tell you what that will do for him. Blessed. Take any idea of blank check, wealthy, a lot of money, healthy, all that stuff, and trade it out for flourishing. Because we're going to learn Sunday, when we get back into John, that there was at least one guy born blind, and it wasn't because he sinned or his parents, but because God wanted to do something and get glory in his life. There are going to be times where things don't go the way you think they should, so this is not, if I obey God, my life will be perfect. No, if you obey God, you will flourish, if not spiritually, or if not materially, you will spiritually. He believes that to do other than to walk in God's ways would be wrong. That's verse 3. Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Well, look at verse 9. He believes that a young man's purity is directly proportional to the word of God that guards him. Against impurity. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. Wonderful verse for a young man. Well, that's what this psalmist believes it's good for. Look at verse 73. You'll have to turn a few pages. He believes that God made him. Your hands have made and fashioned to me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Does it go a long way in establishing the authority of God's Word if you believe that the guy who wrote it made you? That would qualify the Bible as an owner's manual, wouldn't it? That's big. He believes that God's rule is righteous. That's verse 75. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. He so believes that God's rule is righteous that even in his afflictions, he sees that within the faithfulness of God's plan for him. That's, that's huge as far as trust goes. Look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Verse 90. Your faithfulness endures to all generation. You have established the earth and it stands fast. So he believes that since the word of God is fixed in heaven, its truth endures generational shifting of sand. What is it worth to you to be able to settle for all intents and purposes the fact that God's word does not change from generation to generation? 
that it actually is fixed. Not on earth, but in heaven. Heaven's higher than this earth. You'll never get a group of people, even Christians, to come together and say that it all means the same thing. But in heaven it does. That's where it's fixed. And it doesn't matter what it is or where you are or who you are, what generation or what millennia. It's always the same. It's fixed. The ruler's already cast. All the other rulers are measured by that ruler. It's a good thing. He's what he believes. So, summarize this section. What does this poet believe about the Bible he's writing poetry about? He believes that God made the earth, God made man, God's word is true forever, and God expects man to obey it. That's quite a lot to believe. And he does so elegantly. But it's not just about his mind, it's about his heart too. So let's move over to what does this man feel about the words of Scripture. This is where you could go through, if you've got one of these note-taking Bibles, or if you like to make marks and highlight things, you could go back through this. And if you were just to highlight words like love and delight and rejoice or rejoices, and let's just for simplicity's sake believe that those are synonymous, they all basically mean the same thing. Well, if I just pulled out some verses and there's some, these are the clear ones. 14, 16, 24, 35, 47, 70, 77, 92, 127, 162, 167, 174. Each speak of this book as the object of this man's affections. He loves it. He delights in it. He rejoices in it. That's not just a handful of times. That's a bunch of times. This man really loves this book. When's the last time those words came out of your mouth? I love my Bible. I rejoice in the scriptures. Boy, I'm glad for that mental bailout today. All that I worried about yesterday, I can drop it off. I'm so glad I have my Bible. That'd be something that you might find in here. And most of these verses, the psalmist is actually delighting in the Word of God more than something else that's important, but not as much. That's the method he uses to tell you through this psalm how much he loves the Word. He loves it more than, than something else instead. In verse 14, we read that already, are riches. He loves the Word of God more than riches. Verse 24, he loves it more than any other counselor. 35 and 36, more than any selfish gain. Here's a big theme in uh, one section from 69 through about 78. He treasures the Bible more than vindication from his enemies. Well, what does that say about this man's heart? You tell me, is it important for Americans these days to have a clean white shirt as far as the rest of the world's view of them? I mean... You do, you're aware that, that people have interpersonal conflicts, right? That happens at your house. Christmas time, family feud, which is which, we don't know sometimes. I have problems with people, problems with people at work, problems with people on a metro, problems with people at a sporting event, wearing the wrong color. When that altercation begins, what's the most important thing? That you restore the relationship or that you make sure they know your shirt's clean? 
Which is it? Just turn on the news and watch the Capitol these days. Is it more important that the the government functions or that the whole thing, congressmen and senators, all pledge allegiance to somebody's upstanding perfect record of jurisprudence? I don't know. They seem to be grasping at the impossible. It's just one long fight. He said this, she said that, on and on and on and on, as if the goal was to make sure I'm right and you're wrong. Rather than let's get the job done. What does this guy say? Is more important than being vindicated in the eyes of his enemy. That I know my Bible. It'll comfort me. It'll assuage that problem. Soothe that rash. Cure that itch. He likes it above fine gold. It's better than great spoil. In verse 103, he says it's better than anything sweet he could consume. I wonder if he wrote this around Christmas time. (laughs) Any lies are those lies that may bring him personal gain. And then there's the other side of it. Negatively speaking, the response is the same. When he's afflicted or in great anguish, he holds tight to God's word. There's a whole list of these things. When his soul clings to the dust, in verse 25, he reaches for his word. When his soul melts away from sorrow, when princes plot against him, when others taunt him, when he seeks comfort in affliction. That, that's four different verses there. He reaches for his Bible. He asks the Lord to remind him of it, to teach him and, and to have more understanding. When the insolent deride him, when God's judgment is delayed and coming on those who've wronged him. I could go back to the previous rant. When it just looks like God is late to striking someone with lightning that you think deserves it. You go for your Bible or do you go to Twitter? When the wicked lie in wait for this poet, when he struggles to sleep, when he feels small and despised, when he faces persecution, each situation he responds the same. Good or bad, he goes to God's Word. This is in emotive language, this is how he feels. And in verse 98 through 100, strange the way he puts it. More understanding than his enemies, his teachers, and the aged. Not to say, I'm smarter than my enemies, I'm smarter than my teachers, I'm smarter than my elders. It's not it. He has more understanding. He gets things. He's able to put things together and see through. Boy, what would that be worth in our dramatic culture to to just have balance and stability that comes with knowing God's Word. More balanced than my enemies. More stable than my teachers. More at rest than my elders. I've got the truth. That's huge. He also takes up offense for those who do not regard the word of God. 21, 53, 104, 118, 119, 139, 158. This is where we see... 
the opposite of his love and delight for the world. He hates that people see it as any less than he does. Verse 136 is probably the best for this sentiment. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. I think we're probably more prone to getting angry than shedding tears. So what does the psalmist do because of what he believes and feels about the Word of God? I think we've got an idea how he feels. I think we've got a good idea of what he believes. And surely if he believes this stuff and feels this way, it should shape his actions. And we probably ought to just say, I'm, I'm making the assumption most of you are churched people who have some understanding of your Bibles. Maybe some of this is new to you, but... <coughs> If we don't believe that this is God's word, that God wrote it and it's inspired, then I really don't know why we would spend any time here in the coming year. It's basically just somebody else's advice. And with the internet connection, Amazon and a good bookstore, you can probably chart your way through a smorgasbord of other people's opinions. This is God's word. It's how he reveals himself to you. This is a man writing a poem about the way God decided to let us know about himself through his word, the Bible. So if it's really that, then it demands our understanding. It's the same as when you find out you've got something you've only heard other people have when the doctor calls you back. You do a lot of reading after that, right? If you're child wrote you a letter, you'd read it. You'd probably be shocked if they're in college and they write you, but you'd read it, right? <laughs> this is God's Word, the creator of the universe, the one who sent His Son to die for you and take you to heaven if you believe Him by faith. So what does this guy do? Well, there's probably more verses that talk about what he does than how he feels or what he believes. And uh, there's so many of them. Here's another little plan. If you're doing your homework, if you're the extra credit type later today, you can categorize all the things that this man does because of his love and his belief in God's Word. Uh, categorize it by the way he talks about his body and his senses, his eyes, his hands, his ears, his speech. Just try this on. In verse 6, he fixes his eyes on God's commandments. And turns them away from worthless things in verse 37. So his eyes are, are, are used to look at God's word as if it's something his focus is on. In verse 82, his eyes long for God's promises. Probably, uh, and I mean this with all due respect, um, probably better to write these down than turn. I'm going to fly through this <laughs> and get you to lunch on time. He uses his lips for teaching, declaring, and praising God's word in verses 13, 43, 54, 174, and 172. He speaks it. He focuses on it with his eyes. He speaks it with his mouth. Then he lifts his hands toward God's commandments in verse 48. Holds his life with an open hand, kind of like Job. Not forgetting God's word in verse 109. His feet walk in the law of God in verses 1 and 3. He runs in the way of God's commandments in verse 32. He walks in a wide place because he sought God's precepts in verse 45. That's one of my favorites. 
Don't you just feel claustrophobic sometimes with all the things pressing in on your brain? To have a wide open space. Some space. Who would have thought that the Bible's rules would give you space? This gives you space. To be what you were created to be. He holds back his feet from evil. Every evil. And probably the most familiar of all from this chapter, verse 105, he sees God's word as a lamp to his feet, a light to his path. That's his hands and his feet. Then there's his heart. He seeks God with his whole heart in verse 10, that he might not sin against God. He stores up his word in his heart in verse 11. His goal is that his heart be blameless in God's statutes, verse 80. He also inclines his heart to keep those statutes in verse 112. Then there's his mind. With his mind, he meditates on God's Word. In five verses, at least, he remembers God's Word. In at least seven verses, he asks for greater understanding in no less than nine verses. If you'd like to have all that written down, if you, if you want these notes, email me. And... Uh, Maybe you can put back together what <laughs> fell apart about 10 minutes ago. For those of you who like to be good students. So let's, let's say that's enough of a summary. A, a crash course in the 119th Psalm. Poetry is not an easy thing for me. It never was. English class wasn't easy for me. Greek did more for my English than anything, and that was way later down the road. But trying to write a poem was tough because if, if I at least knew one thing about poetry, you have to write out of your heart. And a lot of the things that come out in poetry are kind of private. And for somebody to pick up something you wrote or to find it somewhere or dig out a yearbook and oh no there's a poem you wrote in the back of it to somebody it's like having your diary read right there's this uncomfortable feeling that comes over us when we get in proximity of someone's heart that we don't know well enough to have access to does that make sense and that's why some people will get a certain artist's songs where someone else won't. While there are some that actually appreciate and read poetry for a certain reason, where others, it's a doorstop for them. They just don't get it. I think that's true in this psalm if it isn't in any other piece of poetry. You read through all 176 verses you are routinely going to come up against an uncomfortable moment where you're going to be reading about a man, his God, and his Bible. And you're not there yet. But there'll be other times where he's going to read about his God, his Bible, and his struggle, and you instantly identify with this man. There's going to be places where you're encouraged. There's going to be places where you're steamrolled. It's a magnificent piece of work. An intricate detail. On purposefully, on purpose complicated. That's what I meant to say. 
Purposefully is one word. On purpose, the way kids put it. On purpose, it's complicated. To do what? To sing the praises of our most valuable resource. God's word written down. Our Bibles. So what does it cost to spend time in it? In your daily routine? There's one thing that I heard that I'm going to try. And it's going to be hard. But as soon as I heard it, I know that's me and I got to do it. I heard this from another pastor. He said this, not this year, but a previous year. And his Sunday, he was delivering a message. Was, uh, I don't know, five or six days in. And so far, he was pretty good at it. But he said, here's my resolution. I'm going to read my Bible before I touch my phone. I heard that. (laughs) And then he quoted... Uh, John Piper who said I believe the Lord allowed us to invent that monstrosity known as Facebook just to prove to us we do have time to read his word <laughs> so, that, that one hurts I got rid of Facebook a long time ago but I can't get rid of my phone and the emails and the texts and all the other things that's on there the, the weather he says This book is better than his portfolio. Do you check this book before you check yours? I mean, it's so loaded with checks and balances. Use it as a template to think through what you're going to do beginning two days and, I don't know, 14 hours from now to spend more time in God's Word. Verse 147 is probably one of the better if you want to write it down or write it on your wall with a sharpie on the wall that you see when you wake up. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. You ever cry for God's help? You should. And what's the logical thing to do? Because you know His answer. It's sitting there on your nightstand. I've said it for thousands of years. It's fixed in heaven. My answer to you to your cry for help is the same as it was yesterday, today, and forever. Read it. But to cry for help. The same people that need Jesus to get to heaven need to cry for help every day. It proves we can't do this on our own. We're going to close with a Christmas hymn. We've closed with this Christmas hymn before. It has to do with that line of room in your heart for Jesus. Jesus was... Described by John as the Word of God. The Word with a capital W. How do we know anything about God? His Son came to this earth. And through His words we have understanding. So the question is, and we'll close, this will be our benediction. Is there room in your heart for the Word of God? Room in your day? Room in your morning? Room in your break? Room in your restless nights? You fill in the blank. But before we stand to sing this hymn, let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for another day in your house. Thank you for Christmas. Lord, we thank you for poetry, for a poet inspired by your spirit to write down what he believes and how he feels about our Bible. Lord, may he rub off on us. May we act as he has. 
And may you reward us richly for our investment, but for your glory, not our own. We ask all this in your name. Amen.